just give me a moment to, <laughs> to take all this in. It's a feast. It's a feast to see the faces of all of you who I know and many who I unfortunately don't know, but I'm so grateful to see you here. And for those who I do know, I just have to say it's just a beautiful thing to see your faces and to think of the relationships and the time and the journey that we've been on together for so many decades. It was nearly 42 years ago that I first arrived to be the college pastor here. So for those decades, this place has been our spiritual home. Janet and I are very honored and delighted for the gift and privilege of being here. Charlene, thank you so much for your welcome. I do pray for you. I can't believe the circumstances under which you became the pastor, not least COVID and the utter bizarreness of that in the world, but not least right here and for you as a newcomer. Thank you for what you've done. It is a gift to see faces of people um, in my mind that are not here. And I want to just acknowledge that. People, I'm thinking especially, who have passed away, who, who were once absolutely part of any kind of imaginary picture of the legacy of First Press involved those people. <laughs> and now when I see some of you sitting alone who always used to sit with your spouse, friends who were beloved in this church who are no longer with us, I give thanks for them as well. And on this Heritage Sunday, I particularly want to say thank you to those who are in the upper echelons of the age spectrum, which I'm, well, getting closer to. <laughs> <laughs> it is an amazing thing, and it is a remarkable gift, actually, to think about the fact that my life has been shaped by your generation as much as almost any single group of people. Because when I arrived, you were not in the oldest group of First Press. You were at the very center of the life of the church. You were completely burgeoning in all the things that you were doing. You were generously giving yourselves and your gifts and your faith and your hope and your love, not just to the whole church or to the community that we were attempting to serve, but, but to Janet and me and our two boys. Our lives have been changed because of you. So today when we celebrate Heritage Sunday, it's... It's a Sunday to say, you have marked us. We are different because of you. And that will always be so. Thank you, thank you, thank you for all of that. A feast. I do want to dedicate this sermon to Earl. Earl was, unlike anyone else, a, a unicorn, really a unicorn pastor. I don't think any church has had more of a unicorn pastor than Earl Palmer. He was such a distinct and specific and particular kind of person. So much about the gifts and the hilarity and the outrageous images. I often, when he was yet again speaking about C.S. Lewis or Bonhoeffer or Bart or someone else, I, I used to think someday I'm going to come into this room and there's going to be a a statue of C.S. Lewis here, and a statue of Karl Barth there, and a statue of Bonhoeffer there. It just seemed as though the galaxy should be with us. And it was uh, a reminder, again, to be in this space and to think of all the faithfulness of God that has been demonstrated in the long history of First Press. This morning, as we come to a text that I think is as representative of the gospel message as almost any text could be, 
Let's pray together. Oh God, it is in deep humility before you that we come to listen to your word, to attend to what you would have to say to us today. You have spoken and you still speak. And today, as we hear your word, may our ears be open, may our lives be ready and receptive, and may we be willing to go forth from this place and live the good news for our sake and for the sake of all those that we are called to see. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. At this moment in the Gospel of Luke, what's happening is a very intense sequence of episodes of Jesus' public ministry. It begins long after Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount, which ends early, and then it immediately turns to this legacy of what Jesus is doing to actually transform lives. And it's healing or miracle or confrontation or forgiveness or some act of high drama that happens in all of the chapters that we're looking at. This is just a, like diving into one slice of this high action scene. It's one of the places where Luke shows his drawing from the activity of the Gospel of Mark, which probably sets to some degree the stage for, for each of the, the three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke. And in this context, it is that busyness, that nonstopness, that feeling that Jesus is on the march to see lives changed. And it's sometimes because of his own initiative, but it's sometimes just because the opportunity, the people, the needs present themselves. It is a remarkable text. Just to set it in context, let's remember what's happened before this. At verse 22, Jesus has calmed the storm. What was evident to them was that they saw the storm and what they also saw was a sleeping Jesus. And it was in that context that they cry out in the middle of the storm. Jesus rescues them, calms the storm, and then says, let's go to sleep. Actually, what he says is, where is your faith? But it was this call to a sense of resting that Jesus is saying is meant to define us. Before we're activists, before we're people who demonstrate and enact anything in the world, we're called to this deep sense of rest in the reality of God's love and mercy and power. Then the very next thing that happens is that he and his friends set out to Gerasene, across from Galilee. And as they do this, that's where, why they're in the water. And as they get to the country, the Gerasenes, they immediately encounter man. A man who is naked, a man who wanders in the tombs, we're later told. A man who attempts to somehow come to terms with Jesus' presence. Did you hear how it lands? Then they arrived at the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. As Jesus stepped out on land, a man of the city who had demons met him. For a long time, he had not worn, worn no clothes, and he did not live in a house, but in tombs. When he saw Jesus, he fell down before him, shouted at the top of his voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For Jesus had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many times it had seized him, and he was kept under guard, bound with chains and shackles, and yet he would break the bonds and be driven by the demons into the wilds. 
This is an amazing story as well. This story that in some ways has a unique flavor of Berkeley about it to me. It's a story, I always used to say, just come however you want to dress. We do prefer clothing not, rather than non-clothing, but really otherwise, everyone is welcome. And I suppose the occasional unclothed person was also part of our community. But in this context, it's a very serious matter. It's a matter of, of a kind of spiritual battle that is going on inside this person. We don't know the history, we don't know the legacy, we don't understand the circumstances. We can't easily diagnose what being filled with demons is really all about. But what we can definitely sense is a sense of urgency. Jesus responds to the reality, not as a kind of torment, but quite the opposite, as an act of extraordinary release. And he casts these demons, the text says, into the bodies of these animals and pigs that are then running over the, the edge of the cliff into the sea. It's a very dramatic scene. Everyone is overwhelmed. They're fearful, the text says. And they quickly ask him to leave. It's no wonder. I mean, it may be a hard thing to have this man filled with demons in the community, but to have somebody who fills pigs with demons, that might be scarier still. Not least because it's an economic disaster for the farmers, but also because it signals something that is overwhelming and suggests a reality that is far bigger than the ordinary day could possibly have imagined. And then the next piece, they come back to Galilee after having been sent off by the Gerasenes. And now we read the text that was just so beautifully read by Dot Walker. And now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were waiting for him. There is by this place in Luke's gospel a great anticipation that it is going to be the next encounter. It's going to be the next opportunity to have some encounter with Jesus, either yourself or through the crowd or through something else that Jesus might say or do, a scene yet unclear. But in this case, what happens is that before he gets even very far on land, suddenly, just there, a man named Jairus, a leader of the synagogue, came, fell at his feet, expressed the urgency that he felt because his 12-year-old only child, it seemed, was on the edge of death. In that context, Jesus does say he will come and immediately starts moving in that direction. Just that itself is an amazing moment. Jesus and his relationship with the synagogue leaders was not high at this point. It will get far worse as the text goes on. There's a sense of the intensity of a, a, a major public religious leader coming and begging for Jesus to come and do something for his only child, which he clearly couldn't do for himself. And in that context, he's urgently longing, aching for help. How many times in the life of this church over the many, many years of its life have families been in circumstances like these, where children have been at risk, where the reality of vulnerability, the desperation of families to find hope, the longing for prayers that would restore a spouse or a friend or a neighbor who ache because they do not have the capacity to do something themselves which would actually bring rescue. In this high drama moment, just such a reality is being expressed to Jesus. He does go, the text says. He immediately starts moving in that direction. And then, as we know, those of us familiar with the text, 
as we know, what happens is that they're all pressing around him. They're following him. They've been waiting for him. And now they're going to follow him, follow him to Jairus' house. And as that is unfolding, then suddenly there is something else that happens, unseen it seems, in the middle of this vast crowd. The text just simply says that the woman with a flow of blood for 12 years, it's noteworthy to me and worth reflecting on that a 12-year-old daughter and 12 years of blood. These parallel realities, 12 and 12, I'm not a symbolist trying to make more of 12 than it needs to be. I'm simply saying this is the same measure of time. A child growing up, a woman in great distress. 12 years. In one case it seems so early, other case it seems so late, so long. She simply reaches out through the crowd and touches the hem of his garment. No conversation. No need for engagement, nothing for Jesus to say. She just reaches out, touches the hem of his garment, and anticipates something that she hopes will change her circumstances. In the context of that, Jesus stops. This is the strange moment in this text. How could it possibly be that someone rushing, surrounded by a crowd on their way to a desperately needy child with Jairus' daughter, this might be a good moment for Jesus to get a good one in for the synagogue. The power is on Jairus' side. Jesus, in any case, is following what Jairus has asked him to, to do. But now all the action stops for a woman with a 12-year-old flow of blood who just touches the hem of his garment. Jesus asks, wait, what happened? He waits, no one takes any responsibility. The disciples say, look, Jesus, I mean, we're talking about a crowd here. It's not obvious that anybody, we're all touching you. We're all pressing on to Jairus, right? That's the goal. Jairus' daughter is the goal. And she says, wait. And then the text, in the most amazing way, I think, simply says this. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his clothes and immediately her hemorrhage stopped. Jesus asked, who touched me? Someone touched me, for I noticed that power had gone out from me, he says. When the woman saw that she could not remain hidden, she was already being, in some sense, seen. She came trembling and falling down before him. She declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had immediately been healed. Imagine the courage of this woman. Unbelievable courage to carry what was already a, such a social stigma that had accompanied her all these 12 years. It wasn't just private suffering, not in that context, not in those, that era. She was stigmatized. She was an outcast. She was a person not to be received inside the crowd, let alone right in the midst of it, not least close to Jesus, not least touching the hem of his garment. But Jesus waits. 
And she, with her courageousness, not only has touched him, but now comes forward and explains it all. Imagine, imagine that. Now in front of everyone, the thing that has been probably whispered about, now she declares, this is how I've been living. And Jesus heals her without even a verbal yet encounter with her, without even directly seeing her, but now seeing her and hearing her, he says, not you, but daughter. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. What does it take for Jesus to have experienced a moment like this? This sense of encounter with the woman in her vulnerability. Jesus isn't the one who was asking for her to tell the story. At least none of those details are suggested in the text. Jesus has healed her. She feels compelled by the pressure of that moment to come forward perhaps, but she does do so. She doesn't run away. She comes forward into the light and says, this is what's happened. And then the encounter becomes yet more personal as Jesus sees and touches her. What does it mean to see and be seen? In one way, I think you could almost say that that's the great arc of the whole of the scriptures about a God who sees and wants to be seen. And what is our story? Our story is a story of wanting to see and wanting to be seen. And so much of what we do as an elaborate scheme that we call so many social practice, so many efforts, why does social media thrive because of this? But what does social media typically not do? This. You can see but not be seen. You can appear but not actually be met. You can be to some degree encountered but not touched. You can be acknowledged but not honored. All of that is what's happening in this text. It is a seeing and an honoring and a healing and an, a rich encounter where that perception changes reality and cracks things open in a new and very different way. Friends, have you been seen? Have you been seen this week? Who has seen you? Who's in your life someone who really sees you? That you're not alone, you're not unseen, you're not unrecognized, you're not unhonored, you are you are perceived and you are understood and you are treasured and you are loved. Who is that? And furthermore, who are you seeing this week? Who have you been seeing? I can think of people in my life that that I've seen, family, friends that I've seen, people that I've seen online, people that I've seen in person, people that I've seen through travel, people I've seen locally. I see, but how well am I seeing? 
Am I willing to slow down the action when the crisis is so utterly clear? When the compelling direction and urgency is so obvious, when the objectives are so, so straightforward, just get to the goal. And now here Jesus pauses all of that. This is, this is exactly what you're not supposed to do if you're a highly effective leader. You are not supposed to stop the action. You're supposed to keep the action going. Hallelujah, I'm not the president of Fuller Seminary anymore. <laughs> I know about what it is to feel the pressure to move. I get that. It was true when I was here as the pastor of First Press. It's true of our lives in so many different ways, and all of us experience it in, in different contexts and different movements. But that pressure to move, meanwhile, will we see? Will we take the time to see? I had a disruptive experience a number of years ago when I was speaking at an event in Chicago. I had done my morning session, there was going to be an afternoon session, and in between there was going to be a meal that was together with people who needed food in that neighborhood in Chicago. And so we were going to join a meal for people who were looking for food. And as we did so, we simply sat down at the tables wherever we were sitting, and, and I sat down and began to eat and began to chat with the people that were there. This man, who was clearly a regular at the meal, said to me, so, so are, are you set up? I said, set up. He goes, I mean, do you have housing arranged for? I do, I said. Do you know about where to get meals? You know, there's this meal, but then there's a number of other meals. And he told me about each one of them. He said, and what about your medical care? Do you know about the clinics in Chicago? Do you know the one to go to and the one to avoid? He was seeing me in a way that didn't in any way reflect my social reality, my economic need, but he saw me as a person who was stopping in his own circumstances to greet a stranger and to make sure that I was, as he said, taken care of. I just absorbed it. I leaned into that narrative. I asked him more questions. I said, what other help could you give me? We had a long conversation throughout lunch that day, a conversation I've never forgotten, because in some ways I was technically really unseen. In the most important ways, I was being seen. I was being seen as a, as a human being. I was being seen as a neighbor. I was being seen as a person who had vulnerabilities. I was being seen as a person that might have a need for shelter and food and medical care, all of which I need. And to his greatest ability, he wanted to advise me about that. That was an experience of being seen that cha has changed how I see. Or I think of yesterday, the coronation. I'm an admitted Anglophile. I've lived there twice. I love England. Dot, 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 dot. So I didn't want to get up early. I would have in my earlier years, but frankly, that was just like too overwhelming. So I recorded it, watched parts of it, enjoyed it, enjoyed all the things that one might imagine enjoying, if you're going to enjoy that. Until 
I then called a friend, a friend that all of you know, who will be preaching here on Pentecost Sunday, Zach Niringie. I knew he hadn't watched it. There wasn't a chance of that. This, this brother, as some of you know, is from Uganda. He is currently living in the United States, but he is from Uganda. So I said, Zach, tell me about today and the coronation. He was quiet for a long time. He just said, I just I can, I, I barely can talk about it. He said, you know, when you've grown up in a country that has been plundered by empire and where culture and gifts and natural pieces of life in Uganda have been really destroyed and permanently changed and irreparably damaged, it's not so easy to celebrate the gold and the shiny stones and the pomp and circumstances. It's a story of despair. It's a story of why my country is so starving for food. It's why power is so destructible, destructive in my country. These were words that were not at all a surprise in the context of a long, long, long friendship with Zach. But they brought home again, what am I seeing? I can see the beauty, but can I see the agony behind the beauty? Are, how prepared are we to do that? That's, that's part of why I suggest we should never be more than five minutes away from reading the Gospels, because we need the continuous reminder of how Jesus sees, how he stops and sees, and sees beyond the apparent to the real, the raw, the unexpected, the unpleasant. That's the place where Jesus sees you and where Jesus sees me. That's the reality of somehow seeing beyond the circumstances, beyond the appearances into systems and individuals and structures and habits of life that cause us to not be seen and to not see. So how do we keep working by the work of the Holy Spirit for our, the scales to be cast from our eyes so that we can actually perceive and love? Why does this matter to the First Presbyterian Church of Berkeley on Heritage Sunday? For this reason, that you're here on this particular corner to see and be seen. To see the God who sees you, who sees you before you could ever imagine seeing God, who sees you in all the granular detail, the vulnerability, the agony, the long history. No, but see, it takes a long time to tell that story. Oh, you really want to know why I did that? Well, there's like a whole tale. And I happen to know many of yours. There is a whole tale to be told about why. But Jesus sees us relentlessly and in love, not tormentingly, but out of compassion and mercy and kindness toward us. Yes, it's true that we will rush on to Jairus' daughter. They do. And Jairus' daughter, astonishingly, is also healed. And though she had appeared to be dead and everyone said, forget it, don't even have him come because she's already passed away. Now Jesus says, no, you, you don't see actually what's happening. She's asleep, not dead. He goes, he heals her and brings her back. And in the context of that, she is also then seen. And again, he sees that she needs food, that wonderful, tangible reality of material life. She's just been brought back from dead. She needs a meal, really. 
she needs a meal. She realizes that she needs a meal. He realizes she needs a meal. He sees her. Why is first press on this corner? To see and be seen. To first and foremost, because the mission of our lives, the mission, the complex reality of what it means to be full of giftedness and brokenness needs to actually receive the good gift of God. In a moment, we're going to come to this table. And in the context of this table, we are bearing witness to the one who sees us. And this table in all of its materiality and the fact that it is bread and juice, the fact that it reminds us of the physicality across cultures and places and times and centuries that this food says, you are seen. Like the man at the table telling me who I was and what I needed. Those were gifts of being seen. And Jesus is saying to you today and every day, I want you to live a life as one who's seen. There's no place you can go, nothing you've done, nothing you've said, nothing you've experienced that is outside the reality of God's perception of you and me. And it's in that gift that you then move into the deep experience personally of what the reality of that kind of compassion and healing mercy can be. And at the same time, experiencing that means that we then come to perceive one another differently. We come to see each other with new eyes. We perceive differently. And as we move in this context and as you see each other and as we honor those who have been among the elderly people that are part of having led and lived this in this church's life for so long, we see you. An older man, very deeply a part of this congregation, said to me many years ago, he was by then probably in his early 80s, and he said, you know, the hardest part about getting old is that I feel like I'm just invisible. That's not what we're doing here today. It's why it matters so much that we're doing this. You are visible. And even those who are not able to be here, who might be online or who, who might not be online or here, but who are part of the life of this church, who because of various circumstances can't be present in either way, they are seen by God and they need to know that they are seen by us. And then we move out from this place with clear glass walls, a heritage built at a time when every bank in town was bricking up its windows. This church decided to stay, to build a clear glass walled church in Berkeley when riots were still going on in People's Park and the campus and everywhere around this neighborhood. Why? Because it was imperative that the church wanted to say to the community, we see you. But it was also imperative that the church say, but we know and want you to see us. Not just us in pews, but us as people in the world, in the community, in this university, attending to the reality of the circumstances and joys and hopes that might be before us. I've already talked like way too long. <laughs> I'm being seen by those who are probably worried about how long this is going to go, so I will draw it to a close. <laughs> Thank you, beloved friends. <laughs> I will just draw it to a close with this. I 
can't imagine anything more important than the message of this text. In a way, it holds together the very heart of God and the very heart of God's love in Jesus Christ and the very heart of God for us and for the world. It's what will change the way that we see and know and understand God and each other. It will change how we engage in the world in all the places that we are scattered around the bay and far, far beyond. May this God of perception and of healing and of mercy give us the name that is our name and assure us that we are never alone and never unseen and never unloved. May that change us so that we can do the same in the world. I've created online for myself a catalog of images of people, some I know, many I don't, who capture for me the reality of life around the world. And often at the beginning of the day, I just go through this amazing array of faces and circumstances, some like and some dramatically unlike anything I've ever known myself. May we be people who groom ourselves in seeing, who grow our capacity to look beyond our own personal world to the world of people and circumstances that are around us. And if we do, the celebrations that go on like those in this text will be even more fully our own. Oh God, in your mercy, in your mercy, oh God, do this work. We may be naked, we are surely vulnerable, we're wounded, and so is the world around us. Fill us, O oh God, with your vision. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Shall we stand together and share in our affirmation of the Apostles' Creed? This creed is a further extension of the very themes that we've been thinking about this morning and the declaration of these various doctrinal affirmations of the nature of God and God's salvation in Jesus Christ is being borne witness to in this text. Shall we share it together? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.